0: Good morning. Welcome to this edition of the Richard Urban Show, where we present news and views from God's point of view. We're happy to have Mike Folk on. He's a Republican candidate for governor of West Virginia. So please introduce yourself.
1: Hello, I'm uh, Mike Folk. I grew up in Berkeley County on a farm in Swan Pond. I went to local schools. local college actually too shepherd university studied uh, education and economics ended up finishing my degree in e- economics worked for a year in the finance financial industry um had all my series 763 all your different financial licenses and then i went to graduate school wbu uh went into teaching a little bit both at the high school and college level while also flying and working for my dad's aviation business uh who, which i my dad had a heart attack between my junior and senior year, so I was the guy involved in hiring a pilot to take his place for the, it's a seasonal business, and, uh, but uh, then I went, uh, left Shepard University, at the, well, Shepherd College at the time, and went to work in uh, Mack Trucks in Hagerstown for a year, their engine plant, and uh, I really just didn't really like being inside all day, and had fell in love with flying, so I, uh, went in uh, pursuit of an airline career, became an airline pilot. And uh, I got married uh, just a little bit before I was my 30th birthday to my wife, Stella. And we now have five children. Uh, my wife was a school teacher for, what, 14 years, something like that, uh, 12, 14 years. And uh, so you haven't heard any politics in there yet. Uh, I, I finally, uh, in, in uh, the 08 to 012 timeframe, I started getting a little frustrated with some things that were going on at the national level. We know who was who was the head of it all at that time, some guy named Obama. And so in 2012, I ran for office, the House of Delegates, and served six years in the House of Delegates: two years in the minority, four years in the majority. We got some good things done, but I think there's a lot left to be done, uh, particularly when we have a a governor who, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. If you're running against an incumbent, you got to you got to tell the differences. And so he was elected as a Democrat, switched to Republican, but really, in my opinion, hasn't really changed his principles much. So that's why I decided to run, to, to try to give West Virginians uh, what I believe is a, a, a as, as um, uh, Phyllis Shaffley, if you ever heard of her, wrote a book. Yes. She, she was a Goldwater girl. She wrote a book uh, to give the people a choice, not an echo, which I believe that, that the other my, the other major opponents are really just an echo of the past. And even though they've changed their, their stripes, for the lack of a better way of putting it, they're still they're still the same uh, failed policies that have led West Virginia to some pretty bad places.
0: Okay. So that's who I am. Hey, thank you. So what would you say, like, the three main things you would emphasize, like, in helping West Virginia, you know, as you're running for governor?
1: Well, Uh, obviously the the, the paradigm has shifted a little bit, even in the last three months with, with budget issues. Uh, So, and and this is where I'm uh, in 2017, when we had the last major budget problem, when uh, justice first took office, they were looking under his uh, budget proposal, we were looking at a $450 million deficit. Uh, In reality, that was only about a hundred million dollar deficit. The reason it was $450 million in his budget is because he raised government spending by $350 million and a lot of crony, cronyistic type plans that were going to benefit him and his, uh, his cronies. And uh, so in in that case, I'm well suited to, to balance the budget without raising taxes because I, at the time uh, when the governor was claiming that West Virginia was, he was using the analogy that West Virginia was kind of like a patient on life support. And the only way to save the patient was to raise taxes. Oh and, and he kept saying that over and over. So a group of us got together and I was the lead sponsor. My wife actually made up a nice spreadsheet for the budget to prove that we could, have raised, that, that we could balance the budget without raising taxes. And at that time still give the teachers a 2% pay raise. Um, so I believe that. Reiterate that question. So
0: yeah okay,
1: just my, asking like your three main points okay the, yeah that's what i've done so many campaigns. interviews i've done so many <laughs> interviews. so so one that's thing that's going to be critical is the budget the next thing is going to be education there's a lot of serious issues in education a lot of them have resulted from common core and getting away from and some people say this is cliche but getting away from the uh the basics uh we've done too much social engineering, let's put it that way, in education and gotten away from learning the basics and leaving the uh, social stuff to the home, the family and the church. So that's education, I think, is a is an important part in West Virginia. The biggest part about education is very top heavy, very uh, Charleston centric. Uh, We call it building six down there. Um, Right. And then, uh, you know, The third thing um, is really, and this has really come to to the forefront uh, during this whole pandemic, is uh, constitution. Uh, We shouldn't be suspending the constitution. This is important in West Virginia because if you just, or anywhere in the country, but uh, we basically thrown the the constitution and in particular the state constitution under article three, section 10, which the title of is uh, "Safeguards for Life, Liberty and Property." And then the exact wording in that article says, "No person shall no person shall be, denied, or no, no person shall be um, deprived of life, liberty or property without due process of law and the judgment of their peers." And we've had thousands of small businesses that have been shut down around the state uh, in a very illogical and unconstitutional way uh you know the the person that has the small shop that sells clothing uh clothing store and shoe store for instance was shut down but yet the huge walmart's where you can still buy clothing and shoes was allowed to stay open uh and so you had these mass amount of people going to the walmart's to the lowe's to the other stores so if the intent was to prevent people from congregating shutting down small businesses was the exact opposite of what should have been done. So, and right. in, in reality, it was literally a power grab by the governor and uh, this whole thing, especially after the first couple of weeks of realizing that this wasn't as bad as, as they, that, that we, that they thought it was going to be. And you've probably looked at, you've heard about the model out of England that said, you know, projected yeah. 2.2 million deaths in the U S and, and we're never close to that. And I don't think we ever, Uh, and in fact, the whole idea in West Virginia, the whole concept behind shutting these things down was to flatten the curve, right? So, so we didn't overwhelm the hospitals. Well, literally six weeks ago now, the two major talking heads for the hospitals, which is Clay Marsh, the head of WVU medicine, a medical school, and Albert Wright, the CEO of WVU medicine, both said on a statewide talk line by Hoppy Kirchble that the hospitals could handle any surge. So why has it taken six weeks to open our economy? And now we we've opened it for the most part, but there's still some things closed. And, uh, and even the places that we've opened, we've, uh, we've, uh, put severe restrictions on some of their, uh, their businesses. So I I think we've, uh, the cure and i think it was the president said we can't have the cure worse than the the illness Mm. well that's exactly what we've done in west virginia and many other states around the country not all i mean uh doc uh uh, governor uh christy known out of south dakota never shut her so i I think we should have done more like yeah south dakota or or like sweden
0: i agree with that yeah and also out there it seems like their statistics aren't worse really they're doing okay and they haven't like you know committed kari on the businesses or whatever i was listening to one some people were saying that 25 percent of restaurants will never reopen they're like out of business for one example you know
1: well yeah there's there's a lot of uh there was a survey done and i can't remember the numbers behind it but there was a huge amount of small know, this is a national survey of small businesses, I think by the National Federation of uh, Business, NFB, I believe. And there are literally thousands and, I mean, 10 or 20% of the businesses, I said they would never open again. And uh, we've never, uh, the pandemic, you know, they've said it was unprecedented. Well, that's hogwash. Uh, Pandemics, let me rephrase that. They, They said it was unprecedented in our lifetime, is what they said. When in reality, if you looked at what happened, uh, we had two major flu pandemics in the 20th century besides the one that most everybody 99.9 percent of the people were not around in 1917 and 18 right but the, the one in 57 58 and then the one in 68 69 were huge flu pandemics and in fact the one in 68 69 uh the peak of the infection was after woodstock and i think in that pandemic uh, over a hundred thousand people in the u.s died and we had a third less population, and they've equated that—that that, that were uh, relative to the population we have now. We'd be looking at 200 to 250,000 deaths. So to say it's unprecedented is—is—is is, is, first of all not logical, but—but yeah. but more importantly, what I will agree that is unprecedented is the reaction of our various state governments, specifically our governors, has been unprecedented. Yeah.
0: I agree. I agree with you on that. So, do you think, like here in West Virginia, there should be a legislative review? I noticed in some states the legislature was more active. I know we have a part-time legislature in like challenging. Like in Wisconsin, they got the things overturned in court, the mandates. So, what I'm asking, in short, is should the legislature look at like the health um, authorities? Like I noticed in our constitution, I looked a little bit in the West Virginia constitution. it Seems like these. Uh, so-called authority of the health department is very broad, you know, and it maybe it needs to be reined in, or what do you think?
1: Well, in the code, which I believe is under Chapter 16, the health uh, officers in the various counties have an incredible amount of power, uh, but a code section does not preclude the Constitution, I mean, it doesn't supersede the Constitution of West Virginia. Right. So... If you're going to go out and shut down businesses, you have to follow due process. I mean, I just said you can't. Article 310 is very clear. And I I haven't looked at all the case law behind that, but what is taking place in West Virginia and really in these various states is unprecedented. And and, uh, I do believe that the legislature will be taking a hard look uh, next session, no matter who is elected. Uh, now, whether they do anything serious about it or not, but they'll be taking a hard look at Chapter 15, which is the emergency authorities of the, of, of the governor, and Chapter 16, which is the health uh, uh, officers' authorities. Uh, I mean, like, I think it was in Wisconsin, specifically, where the the, judge, uh, the the court ruled against them, that in their code, the emergency authority of the governor, a governor is limited to 30 days without... The legislature taking action see in West Virginia there is no limit on uh, states of emergency on the the time frame so I'm sure I'm sure there's going to be some type of limit offered uh, by the legislature uh, next session
0: yeah and also I've noticed that or we know that when governor justice put in these mandates unlike other states they said like it was 15 days or 30 days there is no end. It's just like I give this mandate and there's no date. I thought that was very strange. The lockdown. Well, his,
1: his original, before he shut down the businesses, his original executive order uh, was very vanilla and benign. It really wasn't enforceable. Uh, it was called guidelines, as an example. I and mean, right. he kept using the word guidelines. And it really didn't shut anything down. But then what 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 it was a week or two later, when he actually did shut stuff down, uh, even though he called a lot of the stuff guidelines, the businesses were actually shut down. And the various agencies uh, through through the local county health departments had uh, the enforcement mechanism. Uh, And like in Berkeley County, for instance, when they shut the barbers and stuff down, uh and beauty shops there was one barber who had applied for all these federal bailout dollars that were supposed to supposedly available for self-employed sole proprietorships but this gentleman over in um south berkeley county area was 71 or 72 and i'm not sure exactly why he wasn't eligible it might be because he was already on social security but he had a barber shop it was a sole proprietorship he was the only barber in the shop he literally would only have one or two people in the shop per day and since he wasn't eligible for those funds from those federal programs, the bailout money, he just said, I have to make a living. So he opened his shop up and they went and arrested him. Um, I'm,
0: where, that's, where was that?
1: That was in southern Berkeley County. In Berkeley County, just, you know, just one county over from you.
0: Okay. Wow. Yeah, I, I do think that's excessive. Well, the change. I agree with you on that. I'm glad you brought that out. Yeah, this is uh, these unconstitutional orders of the governor, governors, but governor justice specifically, I think it is like way overreach, like you say, that is well, much worse.
1: I have not seen a challenge yet uh, of his orders and from a constitutional perspective. Now, I don't know. I know if I was a small, uh, uh, if I was a business owner that was affected by these orders, I'd be talking to my friends in that business community and i think there's there may be a serious basis for a challenge to force these guys because they took uh they took the use of their property even if only for a temporary basis two three months without compensation that's on that's unprecedented in west virginia history
0: yeah i agree well to change the topic a little um you know something that's dear to my heart is the issue of, of also talking about constitutional freedoms you know, our policy on forced vaccination, or you might say, like, if you don't get every vaccine that's mandated in West Virginia, you can't, you know, send your child to public school. Would you, you, like, how do you feel about that? Is that a good policy? Is that a bad policy?
1: Well, I think you know my history on that. I was the lead sponsor to get rid of uh, mandatory vaccinations. Uh, Look, if vaccinations are Done properly, and in the sense when I say done properly, I'm talking about developed, uh, brought to market. But we know since the 1986 federal law that exempted all vaccine manufacturers from any liability, uh, there have been a multitude. I mean, I could tell you're you and I are uh, a little older, so right. <laughs> when we were growing up, when we were growing up, there might have been you know, a handful of vaccinations that you would get, maybe three or four, you know, smallpox, polio. Uh, I think that's probably all I ever got that I can recall right off the top of my head. I might've missed one, but, uh, I mean, we didn't get a chickenpox vaccination. And if we got the, if we got a measles vaccination, it wasn't a combination of three vaccines. It wasn't right. the MMR. So I think people, I believe in informed consent and let people make their decisions. Uh, the, the reality is that especially it's, it's an interesting conversation right now because they're talking about mandatory vax, you know, mandating having the governors mandate these, this potential vaccine uh, uh, that's coming out for this yeah, that's right. COVID-19, which is actually SARS-CoV-2. So it's right. the second SARS virus. The first one was the 2003 SARS virus. And if you look uh, very logically and scientifically at, what happened with the SARS, first SARS, when they tried to develop a vaccine. And this is well documented by uh, the talking heads in this very discussion, the Fauci's of the world. He actually testified in front of the US Senate that, uh, that he said two things. It's not a guarantee that we're gonna get an effective vaccine for this virus. And number two, and more importantly, he said it could actually have, and I'll use his word, quote, suboptimal results. And there are several other immunologists that are familiar with that. And I talked to one doctor, I'm not gonna mention his name, but he's a professor at a major university in West Virginia, and you probably know him. And he has friends that work in that field of uh, vaccine development, vaccinologists, I think they call them. And he said specifically that his friends had told him that uh, the first SARS that when they tried to develop a vaccine for it, it actually backfired and the vaccine was more dangerous than actually acquiring. Uh,
0: Like so the the people. Yeah. If they were exposed to the virus, then they would have an excessive reaction or something like that, too.
1: Yeah. and And that's. And that was also—that's been confirmed. When I say confirmed, it wasn't just Fauci that said it. I listened to a immunologist, uh, somebody who's developed the lady from Ireland, who has developed a vaccine. She was in vaccine development. I think it was for uh, what was that, Stella? Was that? She developed. She has a vaccine on the market that she's developed. So she wasn't She's not an anti-vaxxer. But she said that she she confirmed the same thing in that fault she had said. And so I've now heard it from three different uh, uh, people, two directly and one indirectly through the doctor that I know at a major university in West Virginia. So putting all of it, and this is the the conundrum or uh, the problem I see with some of our our, uh, government policy right now, and these talking heads are on the various media sources and including our current governor, he's basically saying we have to watch what we do until we get a vaccine. You know, I'm talking about economically and socially. Right,
0: right, that's great. We have to bridge
1: ourselves to this vaccine when all of the professionals in that field are basically saying there's no guarantee we will have a vaccine because this is a SARS virus. Um, And the reality is, and we know this now, even the CDC is saying it, uh, you know, the first person that I heard talk about this, you know, we always knew we had a multiple. To quote uh, Fauci from a New England Journal of Medicine article, he said there was a. We know that the mortality rate is lower than than the than the death rate, much because a lot of people. And he never put a number on it, but he said that there's a multiple of people of people that have been affected, infected, showed very uh, no symptoms or mild symptoms. The first person that actually put a number on it was the the, former head of the NFID, the National Foundation of Infectious Diseases. He now teaches at Vanderbilt University. I can't remember his name. William something, uh, Dr. William something. uh, And he put a number at 70%, uh, that 70% of the people that get infected with the virus have no symptoms or mild symptoms. And then a local a local health doctor that speaks for Berkeley County and, uh, Berkeley and Morgan County, I mean, Dr. Reedy put a number on it. And I'm not sure where these guys got their numbers, but I'm just t- quoting their numbers. He said, he believes 80% of the people get it. Don't know, you know, they have mild symptoms or, 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 uh, no symptoms. I think the CDC has put a number yeah. at 65%. No matter how you cut it over half the people have, have, don't have symptoms and the CDC's own numbers now have the mortality rate at around 0.26 percent is their best guess estimate yeah
0: well to put yeah on that vein before we may move to another topic is like I noticed Dr. Marsh you were mentioning him you know here in West Virginia who's advising Governor justice saying that people should wear masks and then what I'm reading saying they don't they do little if anything do you have any opinion about that? I mean, what what are these guys trying to do? They don't seem very confident, for sure.
1: Well, the one thing that the mask discussion has brought to the forefront, even inside the scientific community, is there clearly is no consensus, consensus unless you happen to be getting your paycheck from a government entity. In other words, Marsh, all the talking heads at the national level, all the talking heads at the local level, the profession, so, so-called professional doctors and health uh, department uh, people, because some of them aren't doctors. Some of them right. just have like a master's in public health, which mm-hmm. is not any kind of scientific degree by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, they all say, the government paid doctors and medical authorities and health department officials all say mask work. Uh, there's a In the private doctor uh, and scientific community, they say they don't, or, or, they, or sometimes can be counterproductive, depending on if you have other underlying health conditions for sure, right. uh, like COPD. Exactly. Yeah, you're breaking up a little bit for some reason. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't wear a mask in public. Uh, right. It's crazy. The, the, craziest, the craziest thing I've seen is when people are driving down the road, and they have a mask on, or they're out in the sunny sunshine uh, out by themselves and they have a mask on. That makes no sense.
0: Okay, all right. So, one thing I've been talking also interviewing some of the candidates, thanks for sharing that, on the department uh, for the commission of agriculture. Like, would you support, and they're telling me, you know, about some of the very over the top, uh, legisl- or not over the top. Uh, cumbersome regulations. I know you're a farmer. Do you have any comment about that or maybe what could be done to improve the situation for smaller farmers?
1: Well, when I was growing up in Berkeley County, Jefferson County, as an example, literally had six or seven butcher shops where you could market your, uh, your cattle, your hogs. And now that's, we've consolidated the industry so much. And it's usually because of the burdensome regulation because a small mom and pop that might employ two or three people can't keep up with those regulations that these massive uh, processing facilities can. And I think having a a well, uh, diverse uh, food supply at the local level and less nationally is is would benefit uh all of society greatly the problem with the uh, current paradigm is that if you have an outbreak like they did like for instance i, I mentioned christy Nome, you know that that uh, one meat processing plant up there and that's really most where most of their cases came from is actually owned by the chinese uh chinese government And uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, but that that, that processing plant uh, processed 20% of our U.S. pork production. And what I was told, and I I have not confirmed this, but I was told that the reason there was an outbreak there is literally the management from China came into that plant about two or three weeks before the outbreak. And so literally somebody brought it into the plant from China. Uh, I, I haven't confirmed that. That's just kind of the rumor, rumor mill. Okay. Um, but, but, yeah, I, I believe that uh, the, food su- the best people to take care and keep this food supply safe are the producers cl- closest to the markets. Is a, is a local producer in Jefferson County going to take a chance and sell bad product and do things that are un- unsanitary? The answer is no. Because if a small business owner, family-owned business, has a uh, a problem with their product, they don't have lawyers on staff like these major companies do to defend themselves against an E. coli or any kind of other problem with their product. And I, I think the best producers are the ones closest to the the consumers.
0: Okay. All right. Well, one other thing um, that's close to my heart, like. When we're looking at the long term um, kind of ideas of helping society, like helping with a whole family breakdown or opioid situation, and this is not maybe so much as a political, but more like a philosophical question. Like, I've always thought, and our organization deals with emphasizing that youth just stay absent before marriage, that that's the best standard for school aged children. Would you agree with that kind of approach? And that will help stabilize families and make them more successful. What, do well, you have anything, any thoughts on that?
1: Anything we can do to help the, uh, what's the word I'm going to use? Nuclear family stay together. will will take care of a lot of these ancillary issues. You know, single family household or single parent households are, are uh, and the numbers, uh, and I can't remember her name, but, uh, the black community, as an example, uh, Candace Owens, I believe, in front of yeah. Congress testified, and you know the, the, that's the number one issue in that community that destroys families is the, the number of single single parent households. So I think all of those things together will produce the outcomes that we that we had a generation ago, okay. or two generations ago.
0: All right. Well, comparing yourself. You know to your like opponents what what would make you um like why should the voters choose you what's most outstanding or you know in comparison
1: well i'm definitely more like the average voter than these two guys are uh, both these guys uh are pretty wealthy guys compared to me i mean justice inherited hundreds of millions of dollars and in fact even woody 20 years ago or so, inherited about a million dollars. So I'm more like the the average everyday citizen uh, with a family, trying to raise a family, trying to make ends meet. And but at the same time, I have experience in the legislatures, uh, particularly from the the budget perspective and the constitutional perspective on uh, uh, whether it's defending your Second Amendment, uh, you know, your First Amendment, uh, the pro-life issues. Uh, you know, I've got 100% pro-life, and 100% pro-Second Amendment voting record. I've actually, I've actually developed my own state budget. Um, I don't think either one of those guys has. Now justice has signed a few. Of course, the first one that I proposed, which became a blueprint for what ultimately became law. That was the, if you recall, that's when justice vetoed the budget on the silver platter with the cow pie that year justice never signed a budget. It became law without his signature. Um, a lot of you, you probably weren't even aware of that yourself.
0: No, I didn't
1: he, know that. Yeah, he, he vetoed the one on the silver platter with the cow pad, and then we went back in special session in June of 2017. We gave him a budget, but he wouldn't sign it. Uh, he let it become law because uh, after a certain period of time, it becomes law automatically, and that's how that budget became law. Uh, so I think I have a better ear to the ground of the everyday uh Uh, citizen in West Virginia. And uh, and I'll take that to, to the office if elected.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Any, uh, any other closing thoughts?
1: I just get on my face. If you're on social media, Michael Folk for West Virginia governor, and my website is Folk, the number four, wv.com. And check me out if you haven't.
0: Okay. Absolutely. Okay. We'll get this Uh, interview up on a video and podcast. I want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today, and and everyone be sure to vote on June 9th. have a a lot of uh, important positions, of course, the governors and the Supreme Court justices. Okay, thank you very much. I am your host, Richard Urban. Thank you for joining us this, this morning, and do be blessed, and we will see you next time.